listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome. We're continuing our Easter series, A More Christ-Like God. And if you were here last week, you'll definitely see that this sermon is like a continuation of that one. But if for some reason you missed last week, don't be worried. This is, this is a self, kind of a standalone. So uh, something's happened recently in the United States for the first time. For the first time in the United States, less than half the people who are citizens uh, claim to um, attend church on any kind of regular basis. Now, that's a kind of a self-assessment, so the measurement of that is a little bit up in the air, but it's kind of a new thing. Uh, some sociological terms for these folks are the nuns and the duns. The nuns are those who are kind of religiously unaffiliated, to quote um, George Clooney's character in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So they just, they don't consider themselves religious. In, in any shape or form. That's the nuns. And the duns are the folks who have been religious at some point in their life. Maybe they were raised in a home that attended church or maybe they had some kind of personal commitment at some time or another, but they no longer do so. People are kind of leaving kind of organized religion. And, and for good reason, I think, if I'm being frank. Like, the way I often hear people talk about God is so toxic. And the way in which sometimes I see Christians treating each other or treating other people is so toxic. I think to myself, why would anybody want to be a part of this? So last week, we quoted a thinker named Walter Wink. And Walter said, and we said this last week, that that rejecting a false god is actually a form of worship. And so I'm not particularly concerned about the situation we find ourselves in because I think largely what's happening is uh, a light is dawning on us that things are different than what we've been told or that the reality of who God is is, is better than what we've heard. And the rejection of these kind of false images of God isn't a bad thing. So if you are uh, in one of those categories, the nuns and the duns, or if your friends or family are, right, they're kind of, kind of done with church, then if the opportunity arises, Walter would say we should do this. He says you should ask them what do they think God is like? And then when they describe a God who's fairly toxic, you can also say then, well, I don't believe in that either. <laughs> like, that doesn't represent the creator of the universe. That doesn't represent the God of the Hebrews, and that doesn't represent Jesus, who is the truest and fullest revelation of who God is. So that we can just agree with them to not follow those kind of negative or toxic views of who God is. So today, our sermon is titled, Santa Claus and Other False Gods. 
And I'm, I'm just realizing that we've got a, a variety of different folks in the room, so I don't want to, I'm, I'm trying to be careful as possible, and maybe online as well. So, um, we often imagine that God is somehow similar to us. Or maybe a better way to put it is, we will become like the God that we worship. That is, people who are fairly, uh, who imagine that God is fairly harsh will become harsh themselves. And people who imagine that God is merciful will become merciful themselves. We, we, we become like the gods we worship. Or, there's an inverse of that maybe, we worship the gods like we are. Like we, you know, it's hard to tell, is the chicken or the egg, which came first. But I'd like to start by going over some more kind of false images of God. So first we have this idea of a harsh God. A harsh God may look lots of different ways, maybe like a tyrant king or a punishing judge or an abusive step-parent or, as Morgan Freeman said, the mighty smiter. So we're thinking about a God who is a mighty smiter. I, I think I can say that that is pretty much how ISIS envisioned Allah, right? The is Islamic state of uh, Iraq and Syria. You've heard of them, right, ISIS? So that's a particular view of Islam that imagines that Allah is a smiter, and so that the way you would worship that God is that you too would smite, like you become God's hand of violence. But that's not something that's unique to that faith or that particular group. So I have a lot of friends. In fact, we have a number. I don't know if anybody's here today. They might have already made it um, back north for the summer. But we have a number of snowbirds who are Pennsylvanians. Pennsylvanians? Is that what the Pennsylvaniaites? What do folks from, from Pennsylvania call themselves? Pennsylvanians, thank you. Right, so, so the Puritans who kind of came over to kind of establish this new land, right, so think of the, think of the word Puritan. It means to purify. Like they, they, were, they were their smiters, right? They kind of engaged in a, in a genocide, like everybody was going to become Christian. Whoa. Right? That kind of mighty, mighty smiter kind of God. It's the kind of, it's a view of God that would justify the Crusades. Or a view of God that would justify the Inquisition. Or a view of God that would justify the expulsion of the Jews out of Russia by the Bolsheviks. It doesn't reflect at all, really, the person of Jesus. But besides the kind of harsh God, there's another image that we have sometimes of God, and that is God that's manipulatable. Manipulatable God. Kind of like a doting grandparent, or a genie in a lantern, or worse yet, kind of like a sugar daddy in the sky. <laughs> so, some of you are grandparents, yeah? And some of you, I think, are probably doting grandparents. 
Like, that's a, that's a thing. Like, that's a thing that you're supposed to be able to do, right? Because when you have your own kids, you're in the midst of work, you're trying to make it, you're kind of sometimes struggling to get along. But then eventually they grow up and they go out and get their own families. And without, without that additional kind of encumbersome finances and such, later in life, your kids have kids. I mean, I, I'm not there yet. I mean, I guess my kids are old enough to have kids, but they don't have any. But at least what I've heard about it is people say, if I knew how good it was to have grandkids, I would have had them first. <laughs> so that, that could be a good thing, I guess, that to, to kind of dote on your grandkids. But it's not so good if we imagine that's what God is, that we can kind of just get up into God's lap and blink our eyes and tell him how we love him, and then he'll just give us whatever we ask for. No, this, this, is, this is problematic. And that, that genie in a lantern, like if I rub the lamp the right way, God's going to do what I want God to do. But that's too formulaic. That imagines that somehow God is tied to do what, what you think God is supposed to do. And that if you do particular things, you can kind of force God's hand. You can kind of make God do certain things. So in the Pentecostal movement, there's a particular kind of brand of Pentecostalism that very much fell into this kind of genie in a bottle type of God. Kind of name it and claim it. Say it and God will obey it. That, that somehow, again, you can kind of get, catch God behind the eight ball. Well, you said this and I did that, so therefore now you have to. And we, and we even, sometimes our songs are like this. Come, God, come. Sit, God, sit. Heal, God, heal. That was a double entendre. Like, heal, like, stand still. And, uh, yeah. Thanks. But, but again, that's not who God is. God, God doesn't have to do anything. God's not your butler. You don't whistle for God and God comes. Um, the, other, the other thought about this, and maybe, maybe this is somewhat of that sugar daddy in the sky, is that we relate to God because we're trying to avoid punishment. But that's really unhealthy, friends. Like, when I came to faith, I, I guess I've always had faith of some sort. I kind of grew up Christian. My parents were Christian. My older sister was Christian. We always went to church. Everybody I knew went to church. And I really loved God. But at some point along the way, my love for God got paired with a fear of God that I was taught that you better watch out. Because God might get you. And you're going to burn in hell if you're not careful. And there's something you can do about it, but you have to kind of appease God. And so God became like fire insurance. And the more God was fire insurance, that is a way of preventing me from having to go to hell, the harder it was to love God. 
or I felt like my love of God was waning as my sense of, oh, God is the one who protects me from being destroyed. It's kind of not, not really a loving idea. So in addition to the harsh God, which some of us envision, or this one who can be manipulated, like the doting grandfather or genie in a bottle, there's also this other idea of a God, a disinterested God, a deadbeat God, the clockmaker, the God who's never really around. Right? I look around, I don't see God, I don't smell God, I don't touch God, I don't hear God. People have said that God is around, but I can't find him. You know, somebody gets a diagnosis of cancer, and I pray, 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 and then they die. And I say, where was God? God's, God's not around. God can't be found. This is, this is a view of God that was very popular in the revolutionary times in the U.S., a lot of people kind of embraced the view of God called deism. That God was a grand clockmaker. That he had, he had made everything and he had started it, but he had kind of left it. It was ticking on its own. But God wasn't an interventionist. God wasn't intervening in it in any way, shape, or form. Um, I'm going to date myself here a bit, but maybe about 30 years ago, do you guys remember Bette Mittler's song, God is Watching Us? Raise your hand if you remember that one. It was real popular. I mentioned it to the staff this week, and not a one of them knew it. I thought, oh, I'm older than what I realized. But the, I forget how the, the verse, couple of verses go, but when you get to the bridge, it's God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance, which is not true. God is not watching you from a distance. That's like a peeping Tom. <laughs> That's not God. God is close. God is near. God loves you. God cares for you. I mean, the Bruce Almighty clip is funny and, you know, it exaggerates a lot of things. There's not actually a filing cabinet with every thought or word you've ever had that's going to stretch out across the room. But God does know us that way. And so, one of the things that I want to do today is to kind of undo some of these toxic views of God. There's, there's, one, there's one last one. It's kind of a hybrid. And uh, you might want to cover somebody's ears. I'm not sure. It is Santa Claus. So, Santa Claus, God love him, is a mixture, I think, of all of these false gods. Like, listen to what we say about Santa Claus, and you, you know this well. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Hold on. We're not over. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Oh, no, just kidding. 
So he comes around every now and then, but most of the time he's not around. He's a bit like that deadbeat dad. He only shows up like once a year. And when he does show up, he wants to give you something as though giving you something is going to make up for not having been there all year long. But often, like the deadbeat dad, he doesn't actually come through. I can't tell you the number of times as a little boy I sat on Santa Claus' lap and I asked for something and then come Christmas morning, it wasn't there. And what's all that stuff about making a list? It's as though Santa Claus is like, is like the cosmic babysitter watching every child and he knows who's been good and he knows who's been bad and he's going to come and, you're, and he's going to reckon it all to us. And if you've been bad, you're going to get a lump of coal. Whatever that meant. And I grew up the grandson of coal miners. I still didn't know what that meant. And that whole idea of kind of watching you from a distance. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. That's kind of creepy. Like, this, this is not someone to kind of reflect our understanding of who God is. If we want to know who our God is, Scripture tells us exactly who God is. Scripture tells us that God is love. I'm going to read at length here a bit from 1 John chapter 4. And I'm reading at length on purpose because I really want you to kind of hear Hear this whole piece. So this is what it says. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage that they've done to our relationship with God. My dear friends, if God loves like this, we certainly ought to love each other. No one has seen God ever. But if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us, and his love becomes complete in us. Perfect love. This is how we know we're living steadily and deeply in him and he in us. He's given us life from his life, from his very own spirit. Also, we've seen ourselves and continue to state openly about the father, or excuse me, that the father sent his son as savior of the world. Everyone who confesses that Jesus is God's son, participates continuously in an intimate relationship with God. We know it so well, we've embraced it heart and soul. 
This love that comes from God, God is love. When we take up permanent residence in the life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house, uh, becomes at home and mature in us so that, we, so that we're free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ's. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, are going to love. Love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first. That's the first epistle of John, chapter 4. And that, my friends, that is the picture of who God is. God is love. Brad Brad Jerzak says it this way, God is love without remainder. That is, God is love, God is not love and something else. God is not love plus something else. God is love. So that every aspect of God is love, is loving. Every attribute of God is love, is loving. You can't understand who God is. You can't know God. You can't get to know God. You can't be in relationship with God unless you know love because that's what God is. Now, as we said last week, we use the word love in our context to mean lots of different things. So what do we mean by love? Well, Scripture helps us here too because it tells us, like it said in that passage, no one has seen God, right? But in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say that. No one's seen God. But if you've seen me, Jesus will say, You've seen the Father. So that Jesus is the revelation. Jesus is the manifestation of God. In the Gospel of John, he'll say it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him, meaning the Word, through the Word, all things were created. And all those who believe in the Word become the children of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and that is Jesus. Uh, We heard the text from Colossians again today. We read it last week. We read it again this week. I might read it again next week. Because I really want to drive this home. That as Paul says, Jesus is the image of the visible and invisible. Right? Jesus is the image of God. And that that verse 19 of of chapter 1 of Colossians, I think, really nails it, where he says, the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. So Jesus is the one. Jesus shows us who God is. And so we look to Jesus. And we follow Jesus. And Jesus is not harsh, Jesus is not a a tyrant king or a punishing judge. Jesus is not an abusive step-parent 
or a mighty smiter. Jesus can't be so easily manipulated. People tried to manipulate Jesus. Hey, Jesus, why don't you do this? Hey, Jesus, why don't we go there? And Jesus is like, uh, nope. Right? Some wanted Jesus to be like a religious, kind of very pious one. And he's like, I think I'm going to go have lunch with the sinners, with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes. And they're like, oh, who wants a rabbi like that? Others wanted Jesus to kind of lead a militant revolt against Rome, right? Give us our arms and let us protect ourselves and defend our God. And Jesus is like, turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat. Some wanted, wanted Jesus to set up a political system. And he's like, my kingdom is not that type of kingdom. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, keep my commandments. And what is his commandment? That you love one another. That's who Jesus is. And that's what he calls us to. And that's why we've titled this series, A More Christ-Like God. Like if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to know particularly what Jesus is like, you look at Jesus on the cross. The one who came and died for you, for me, and for everybody. We read a different passage of 1 John last week that said that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. I love these little cartoons that show pictures of heaven where it's really crowded and everybody's surprised that they're seeing these other people there. <laughs> like, how did they get in? Like, certainly those type of people wouldn't be allowed here. It's one of the reasons I love the fact that we come to the table every Sunday. Because coming to the table, as we say, is not an invitation of mine or of Oasis. Because this is the table of the Lord. And it's the Lord who invites us. And the Lord has invited all of us. He invited Judas who portrayed him. He invited Peter that denied him. He had one, he had one disciple who was a zealot. You know, the militant one. And he had another disciple who was a tax collector. The one the militant one would want to kill. Because when we come to the table of the Lord, it's not just that we're making peace with God, or better yet, that God is making peace with us. But the peace that God is making with us doesn't just resolve the enmity we might have had with God, but it resolves the enmity that we might have with one another. Which is why before we come to the table, we pray. We pray the prayers of the people. We bring our gifts. We share with one another grace and peace to, to clear the air. We're not coming to the table with strife for one another. We're coming to the table having given all those things. It's a reality, but it's also a beautiful one that when we take communion, we don't come and, and have just grapes and grain, but we have wine and bread. Grapes and grain just naturally occur in the world, but wine and bread have to be made. It's the work of our hands. 
the liturgy, that that term actually means the work of the people. We come and we worship God. And I just want us to be clear about what God we're worshiping. We're worshiping the one true God who created the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the God who was revealed to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The embodiment of love. The one who came and served and died. And next week we're going to look more particularly at that death. Like what does it mean to see Jesus on the cross? But for today I just want to end with this passage from Hebrews. This is just another passage. It kind of goes with what we've heard from 1 John, what we've heard from the Gospel of John, what we've heard from Paul's letter to the Colossians. But it's just another way that the New Testament is telling us, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. This is the opening verses of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the perfect reflection, the perfect mirror of who God is. So any description of God that somehow doesn't align with who we know Jesus to be is a bad description. Jesus is not some, just some representative of God or some, represents some side of God or some aspect of God. But the fullness of the divine, the fullness of the divine resides in him. And so that's who we have to know. That's who we have to follow or else the idea of calling ourselves Christian is faulty because we're following Santa Claus or a genie or some harsh God that's in favor of us killing our enemies instead of feeding them, destroying them instead of loving them. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Don't curse them back. Pray for those who would hurt you or marginalize you. And my fellow Oasians, that's who I want us to be. That's who I want to be. So I want my children to be. Because I think that's what it means to follow God. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.